Welcome to The Gold Exchange with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. And now, on to today's episode. Hello again, and welcome to The Gold Exchange Podcast. I'm John Flaherty, and I'm here with Keith Wiener, founder and CEO of Monetary Metals. In today's episode, we are going to discuss a topic that has dominated the precious metals headlines in recent months, namely the so-called silver squeeze. The internet is aflame with accusations of fraud and deceit aimed at some of the world's largest institutions in the space, including and probably most notably the Perth Mint. A few members of our audience concerned by the severity of these claims wrote to us to get Keith's take on the situation. In response, Keith wrote an article entitled The Truth About the Silver Squeeze. There are also three other articles that touch this subject, which date back to the end of January and early February when all of the fun got started. We'll, of course, link to all of this content in our show notes. So let's start with the accusations. Keith, as I understand it, the basic claim is that people are calling into places like the Perth Mint or other institutions where they have gold on deposit and are requesting delivery of their metal. And when they are met with uh, responses that include significant delays on their delivery times, they are naturally a bit upset. And then the word Ponzi starts to appear in the headlines. So you start your article, Keith, by invoking the eighth grade SNP test, as it were. Please walk us through that. The first thing I just wanted to say, a year ago, people walked into the grocery store and expected uh, delivery of toilet paper and uh, didn't get it. Did anybody think that toilet paper was a Ponzi scheme? So sometimes it's possible to overwhelm, or overload a retail distribution system. And it doesn't mean anything's Ponzi. It just means the capacity of the retail distribution ecosystem from manufacturing to retail has a finite capacity. And then if demand spikes temporarily, then it can't service that, which is what happened with toilet paper. Sniff test is something I've always had in, as a software developer Many years ago, my company, we had a client and a server, and we shipped a version to a new version of the software to a customer. And it turns out that particular version of the client didn't refuse to connect with that particular version of the server. And so the client emailed me and said, what the heck is going on with you guys? Don't you even test this stuff? And of course, we tested it extensively, but the server test was in its own silo and the client test was in its own silo. And so I coined the term, I called all the engineers into the conference room and I coined the term sniff test. From now on, before we send anything, we're going to give it a basic sniff test. And that includes making sure that version of the client is compatible with that version of the server. So broadly, I think a sniff test is just a simple litmus test. Does this make any sense? Is this sane or insane? And the claim is that there's this incredible shortage of silver and yet the price is falling. I mean, economics 101 says if there's a shortage, there's a price is rising. So how do you get to prices as falling, which it was from the time those rumors really started to circulate, the price was falling and had actually had been falling, I think, and then, you know, continued to fall. It doesn't pass the sniff test. So that was my comment about that. Right. So Keith, you've got lots of connections in the space. And so naturally you picked up the phone <laughs> and made a few calls in preparation for your article and spoke to a number of these folks that uh, deal in silver bullion. Can you give us the highlights of those conversations? You know, I was going to say, I just want to preface this with sometimes commentary in the gold and silver space is analysts are saying, you know, my peeps, or I've got a guy. I love that. I've got a guy. I've got a guy in London. I've got a guy in Beijing. And that's how they 
you know, create or traffic and rumors. In this particular case, obviously Monetary Metals being an institutional player in gold and silver markets, we've got a network of other companies we do business with. So we spoke to a number of these companies and said, is there a shortage of thousand ounce bars? I totally get there's a shortage of retail. If you want to buy one ounce, even today, if you want to buy one ounce Silver Eagle, you're going to pay, if you can find it at all, you're going to pay an enormous premium you know, to get that because there is a shortage of retail product. But the global silver commodity market operates on thousand ounce bars. So I called around and a lot of retail dealers don't necessarily deal in thousand ounce bars. It's not something you necessarily want to take home. So, and then the other thing that needs to be said is that, so you don't want to take it home because then it loses its provenance and then to be accepted back in is going to need to be reassayed and all that. So it loses some liquidity for doing that. You know, the other thing is silver, it's not as heavy as gold, but it's pretty darn heavy. A thousand ounces is like, what is that? 60 pounds, something like that. And it's the size of a small loaf of bread, like a pretty small loaf. That's hard to handle. It's hard to carry. It's not something most people want to take home. So not all dealers deal in it, especially the ones that are really oriented to the retail trade. But we spoke to a number of more commercial or institutional and financial companies and said, is there a problem with 1,000X bars? And the answer that we got back was, how many do you want to buy? We'll sell you as many as you want. So I think in the article, I said, uh, you know, anybody who, who's concerned about this and wants to buy 1,000X bars, we'll sell as many. You know, how many do you want to buy? We'll sell them to you. We're not even in that business. We don't normally deal in, in metal, but to allay a concern or to make a point, we'll put that out there. And uh, any takers so far? Nobody has, which is actually kind of ironic. So maybe it's more fun to traffic in the rumors than people actually that desperate to get their hands on the silver. So you alluded to earlier the distinction between the retail silver market, which is the coins, typical products offered at the dealer level and the sort of institutional silver market, which are these thousand ounce bars. You've often drawn an analogy using the coffee market. Why don't you walk us through that parallel? Yes, let's say you live in generic city, you work in the downtown area, and the city is just busy imposing regulation after regulation after regulation. They say, well, you can only load between 2 and 3 a.m. And then they have a labor ordinance that says, well, after midnight, you have to pay workers double time. And they have some other ordinance that says, well, you have to have a minimum of three workers on shift. And then there's something else about the size of truck that's allowed. And then pretty soon for your local coffee shop to be able to get their supplies, it's costing them thousands of dollars a day in an expense to load something that previously would have cost $100. Or the truck would show up, there'd be one guy open the back door, okay, put the pallet here, okay, we're good. And then let's say on top of it, aggressive zoning, and food and fire and health and safety and all these different things, they end up closing down two-thirds of the coffee shops. And then the few remaining ones have a line out the door. So the price of coffee, if you want to buy a double mocha latte, whatever trendy drink that you prefer, you find that the price has gone to whatever, $15. Say, oh my God, inflation. Well, that's a whole separate topic. And then if somebody were Trading the coffee market the way they think of the gold and silver market, somebody would say, well, there's a shortage of coffee. So, Keith, I think the main feature of these ardent accusations has to do with allocated versus unallocated silver and the fear that there are innumerable claims on allocated silver. Will you please define the difference between allocated and unallocated and shed some light on that concern? 
Yeah, I was going to say, they misconstrue certain terms. So they don't quite understand what unallocated is. Then they pivot or segue to fractional reserve, which they don't understand either, and then somehow end up 1 plus 1 equals 17.23579. They somehow end up with every ounce has been fraudulently sold 100 times over. Now, fractional reserve is a concept that applies to banking and whatever one might argue about that. It isn't about selling. It's not like you have inventory that you have fraudulently oversold. So that's a confusion there. But in a mint or a refiner, they often have unallocated accounts. And the advantage to the retail customer is, of course, you don't pay storage fees. Otherwise, you're paying, there's a loss of 0.75% or 1% per year. And that adds up, especially if you're holding for a long period of time. Unallocated means you're not paying fees. So there's attraction to doing it. What does unallocated mean? Well, if you think about the business of, let's say, take somebody vertically integrated, like the person meant, although I don't really want to speak specifically to them, you have a, a full vertically integrated operation that's buying Dore. So that's the concentrated metal that comes from the miners. And then you're melting it and you're dissolving it in chemical reactors. You're putting through all these processes to produce grain. And then you're melting the grain again and casting it into bars. And then the bars go through whatever process, especially if they're being minted, they have to be precise weights and so on. And so all of your production processes, there's a certain amount of gold that's always there. I mean, every day you're buying more Dore, every day you're shipping finished product, and but there's always a certain amount of pipeline in between. And unallocated is that metal. It's not that there isn't metal to back the claims of those unallocated account holders. It's that the metal is not in the form of a bar with a serial number sitting on a shelf. With your name in a computer, your metal is anywhere between, somewhere between Dore and liquid being cast into bars. Or, you know, if you're a mint, you're then taking the bars and you're squashing them under rollers to flatten them and polish them. You're stamping out circles, going through more polishing and whatever. And then ultimately you're taking that disc, uh, that coin blank, and then stamping it in a die to produce the coin. And then the inventory is there before you sell it. So the unallocated metal accounts are the owners. They're providing the funding in the form of ownership. They're owning that, all that metal that's work in progress. And whether or not you like that as a deal, as an account depositor is a whole different story. That's one of those pivots between, is that the type of account that you want? Maybe yes, maybe no. It has advantages. It has risks. But they pivot from that to saying, essentially, nobody should have it. It's an invalid thing. It's a fraud. It's fractional reserve bullion banking. And then they, they're back off to the races again. So my analogy is, suppose you went to Carta, Indonesia, where there's an awful lot of coffee comes to market. And I think the commercial lot size for coffee is 35,000 pounds, something like that. And you find that the price of a commercial lot hasn't budged at all. So what do you conclude? Is there a shortage of coffee? Or is there a shortage of coffee retailers in that particular central business district because of the regulators and the taxinators and the health inspectors and the labor unions and everything else. And so it's an analogy to silver. There's absolutely a shortage of silver coins and minted bars in smaller sizes, one ounce, five ounce, 10 ounce. I don't think even kilo bars in silver are particularly short. So by the time you get to that size, you're getting a little bit out of retail and a little bit more into investment grade as an institutional type product. And I don't think there's even really much of a shortage in kilo bars, but certainly at the thousand ounce bar size, there isn't. 
And so that was the analogy, the coffee analogy. So Keith, I'm curious, why does this theme of manipulation and fraud and conspiracy and apocalypse marketing continue to surface? We see the faces change, the alleged smoking gun morphs and changes, but this continues to bubble up to the surface and grab headline space. How do you account for it? I guess there's probably several factors. One is the old media adage. I think this goes back to the 19th century. If it bleeds, it leads. A sensational story, man bites dog, I think is another one of those analogies. It's exciting and interesting. And the story of the dog biting the mailman isn't particularly interesting because that happens every day, presumably. So that's the first thing is it's sensational. It's exciting. It's dramatic. I mean, just think the banks are on the brink of collapse any moment now. All you have to do is buy silver. It's kind of interesting. And I was looking this morning at Twitter and one particular promoter of these conspiracy theories, you know, had this thing. He quoted the, I got a little bit ahead of myself, but he quoted the LBMA description of unallocated silver, unallocated gold and silver at the bullion banks. And first of all, he's treating it as a revelation, which isn't, it's a bank credit, nothing more, which is a different thing entirely from unallocated silver at, let's say, the Perth Mint or some other refiner or commercial company in the silver, gold or silver business. But anyways, reading the comments, half of them were like, you know, oh my God, what an incredible fraud. And the other half were like, yeah, that's going to collapse the entire banking system and destroy the U.S. economy. Bring it, man. And all these people, all these bros are like high-fiving each other. I'm like, seriously? You want to bring about the collapse of civilization and you're cheering and you think that's a good thing? So I think there's a little bit of that, the Joker and Batman. Some people just want to see the world burn. But I think probably the sweet spot in the middle is people who get this idea. And every day there's a new group of people that come to gold and silver for whatever reason. Their buddies have been bugging them or they see what the Fed is doing. The Fed isn't going to raise interest rates or whatever. And then they think, okay, it's time to buy some. And a funny thing happens along the way. They get caught up in the casino action. They come thinking that, okay, this is a solution to an antidote to the dollar. And then they buy some and what do they want? They want it to go up. And so they turn to find the sources that promise them, oh yeah, it's going to go up. I'm here buying silver today. Sure, it's only 27 bucks, but let me tell you, it's going to be $27,000 next week. And people are making investment decisions based on this, which I just think there's a lot of good reasons to buy gold and silver, but expectations of getting instantly rich is not one of them. So would it be a fair question that anyone who's bringing these accusations, if they're affiliated with a a bullion dealer or some other retail type outlet that would sort of question, let's say, their credibility? I see the point there. And obviously, they're making a self-serving argument because they're saying, buy our product, you're going to get rich. And obviously, it needs to be said, and the elephant in the room here in this podcast is that I'm the founder and CEO of Monetary Metals. So anybody could say, well, Keith, you too are talking your book or your comments are self-serving. Although you drill into that, wait a minute, it's self-serving to me to say to people that gold and silver are not going to go up necessarily very much. I'm not sure that would be self-serving, but I'd rather shy away from the argumentum ad hominem, well, you're wrong because who you are, you're wrong because your job, and then just focus on the merits of, does this pass the sniff test, number one? Number two, some interesting things you can observe if you take a step back and look at the pattern. These people have been saying exactly the same things for at least 20 to 25 years. 
any day now, cartel is going to be broken. They use the term signal failure. You know, and they make up these terms. I mean, what does it even mean? The fractional reserve, fraudulent, oversold, and they stack up all these terms on top of each other and create this word soup that doesn't even necessarily make any sense. They piece one and one together and they come up with 17.37925. Like, how did you, what's your math on that? They misconstrue things. So for instance, they'll take a look at the amount of gold that's registered in a COMEX warehouse for delivery. And they'll compare that to the number of futures contracts. And they'll say, well, see there, it's been oversold. They do all these things. It's innuendo. It's, I've got peeps in Beijing who promised me that this has happened. And the innuendo of juxtaposing all these non sequiturs together, they end up with the story. There's a lot of things you can see. This doesn't really feel like science or journalism. It has the feel of something that's promoting a narrative or promoting an agenda. And that's what it is ultimately. Okay. So Keith, as with most of your articles that address manipulation, you always bring it back to the basis. How does the gold or silver basis debunk these conspiracy theories? So the basis is simply the difference between futures and spot. It's literally spot minus future price. It's a little more technical than that, but people don't really, often people don't ask the question, what is it that keeps the futures price so closely connected to the spot price? They're so close that it, there's almost nobody has any reason to make a distinction between the two. If I say the price of gold today is whatever, $1,780, 18, actually, I think it's over 1800 today, if I, if I recall my screen earlier. Nobody has to care whether that's futures or, or spot because they're so close. So what keeps two prices so close together? Well, it's arbitrage. That is, if one price gets higher than the other, somebody is going to buy the lower and sell the higher. So imagine if Google shares are traded in uh, New York and in London at the same time. I don't know if that's the case or not, but just for instance, if the price of a share is 99 in New York and 101 in London, then somebody is going to buy New York and at the same time, instantaneously or concurrently sell London and pocket a $2 spread. Now, that very act of arbitraging that spread is, of course, pushing up the price in New York because there's buying in New York and pushing down the price in London because they're selling in London. And that they're going to keep doing that trade until New York is pulled up to about 100 and London is pushed down to about 100. At some point, the spread gets so thin, it isn't worth anybody's while to play around with anymore. So imagine if a Brinks truck carrying not dollar bills, but I don't know, let's say pennies or, or nickels and dimes and quarters, crashes on the highway. You'd have a whole crowd of people gathering up nickels, dimes, and quarters, right? You'd get to the point where maybe there's a few left in the weeds in the ditch, which is a little swampy with dirty water. Most of the people would probably go home. Maybe a few kids maybe crawling in the ditch looking for it, but most of the people would go home because the bulk of the profit or the bulk of the money has been taken already. And the same thing is true in any financial arbitrage. So that spread is a very small number. The prices are very close. But changes in that spread are very meaningful. Spreads tend to be stable unless there's a change in market condition. So if you see the price of the future rising relative to the price of spot, and there can be two different mechanical causes for that, but if the price of future is rising relative to spot, what does that mean? Well, that means that spot is either being pushed down, so the price is falling, or the future is being pushed up, buying, you know, the price is going up, but the buying is being driven or being led by futures market. And so these conspiracy theories 
generally involve the banks are supposedly selling massive amounts of paper short. So if the price of silver drops $3 in a day, they say, oh, look, the banks just whacked it. If you sold enough paper to push down the futures price by $3, but you don't have any silver, which is the allegation, so you can't sell spot down. You can only sell the futures down. Then there would be a $3 gap between spot and futures. And that $3 gap would be seen as the basis and co-basis would go completely haywire. You'd have a $3 positive co-basis and $3 for the next delivery month. So what is that? July. So we're in May right now. So June, July, two months, three, what is that? Out of $27 is 11% for two months. It'd be 66%, something in that vicinity, 60 to 70% backwardation. I mean, if that happened, Monetary Metals, I, we would be getting up on the rooftops, jumping up and down, bellowing that there's a giant 60% backwardation in silver. But we wouldn't be the only ones. I mean, that would not go unnoticed. A lot of people would be talking about that. That would make CNBC and Bloomberg. That would make Fox Business, probably. Everybody would be screaming about that. That would be an unprecedented harbinger of something. And the point is, it isn't happening. It's the Sherlock Holmes, it's the dog that did not bark in the night. And so that's a longer explanation of what do I mean by look at the basis, and you can see that the conspiracy theory isn't quite right. Well, that's all the time we have today. Keith, as usual, we appreciate your insights on this murky topic with a lot of chatter to sort through on the internet. Thank you again for joining us on The Gold Exchange. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go to goldexchangepodcast.com to learn how you can earn a yield on gold paid in gold.